Well, I'm fired up this morning because we're in week three of our series on the Holy Spirit entitled The Helper. If you've missed the last two weeks, I'd highly encourage you to go catch up with that online so that you can kind of have some reference for where we are at. Most of the time when I try to preach a message, I try to make it standalone, meaning that if you've missed all the other ones, this one makes sense to you. The, the, this series on the Holy Spirit is a little bit different because we are actually walking through three chapters of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 throughout this series. And so they kind of build upon one another. Our very first week, we talked about the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual believer. And then last week, we shifted to the working of the Holy Spirit in corporate worship because that's the primary context to these three chapters of Scripture. If you remember right, last Last week, we talked about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the gifts are given to the body. And the gifts are the Spirit himself manifesting in a believer for the working to accomplish the will of God in the corporate worship setting. The gifts of the Spirit are not to be thought as like gifts underneath a Christmas tree, but rather the gifts of the Spirit are the Spirit himself manifesting in the life of a believer. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that we talked about the what, which were the spiritual gifts, and we also talked about the why. Why did God give spiritual gifts to the church? Well, it was to build up the body of the church. It was to build up the body of Christ, which is you and me. If you remember from chapter 12, uh, the apostle Paul is writing the church and he says, here are some gifts of the spirit. And here's why, because we're all a body. We need each other. We can't look and say, man, I wish I had that person's gift or I had these people's gifts over here. God has gifted us to contribute to the body as he wills. On the other hand, we're not to look at somebody and say, we don't need their gift. We need each other in this process. Now we're going to turn to chapter number 13, and we're going to see a completely different aspect to this talk. And if you would, please stand with me today. As we turn, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, and we're going to start in verse number 1. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse number 1, it says this, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect, perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, I, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest 
of these is love. Let's pray over the word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you today, God, that you speak to us through your word. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that we can turn to your word, and Lord, that it comes alive to us. And I pray today as we look at the topic of love, Lord, that you would just spark something inside of our heart, Lord, that we'd have an understanding of the hinge in which the gifts of the Spirit are to operate. And Lord, that we would be a people that's marked by love. Everywhere we go, Lord, the people would see your love inside of us, resonating inside of us, and resonating out of us. Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. Now, it seems like such an odd topic of the Apostle Paul to start bringing up in the middle of the discussion of spiritual gifts the topic of love. Love does not seem like an appropriate topic to be talking about in the middle of spiritual gifts. Because if you read this passage of Scripture in this section in the Bible, you'll know that chapter 12 deals with the what and the why of spiritual gifts. And then Paul talks about love in chapter 13, and then he goes back to spiritual gifts in chapter 14 on how they should operate. So why does he talk about love in the middle of discussing spiritual gifts? It seems like such an odd thing to do. Why would Paul do that? Well, I believe there are several nuances that we can glean from this passage. First is this, if you're a student of human nature, you know that any power that humanity has ever developed or received, we have figured out how to weaponize it and use it against other people. I want you to think about that for a moment. I'm a student of history, and unfortunately for charity and you guys, I've been listening to these podcasts going in detail about World War I, and now I'm starting on World War II in this podcast, and I use that as a lot of reference. So if you hate history, I apologize in advance. However, it's great for me because I geek out on it. And what you'll notice when you start studying history is this, is that humans are constantly trying to come up with new power in which to destroy one another. And anytime they develop a power or they receive power, they use it as a weapon towards other people. And I think what Paul's trying to do is to get us to understand that the spiritual gifts are powerful and they empower the body to edify and build up the body. But if we're not careful, we can become dogmatic on the way in which uh, the spiritual gifts are in our life and we can use them as weapons to hurt other people. Furthermore, we must remember that Paul is writing about spiritual gifts and he is writing in the context of correction. And so the Corinthian church was not operating in the way that God had ordained or designed, and Paul was wanting to remind the people how they should respond because he was about to tell them some things that they did not want to hear. I think it's safe to assume that when Paul was about to pen the next section that he was going to send to them, that he knew that the Corinthian church was not going to be excited to hear what he had to say, and so he was reminding them, listen, I'm about to tell you something, but here's how we should respond. We are always to respond to one another in love. We might disagree on something, but you need to understand that the Holy Spirit is calling us to love above all else. And so that's exactly what we see happening in this passage of Scripture in this section. In chapter 12, he's dealing with the what and the why. Chapter 14, he's dealing with the how. And right in the middle, he puts a hinge in which the Holy Spirit is supposed to operate. If you go to a door, a door is mounted upon hinges that let it swing and move freely. And that's almost an analogy of the way love is. Love is the hinge in which the Holy Spirit is supposed to move upon. And otherwise, we're going to get derailed. Here's the big idea of this message. There is a more excellent way. There is a more excellent way. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is calling us to. He says this at the end of chapter 12, and he says, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And the more excellent way is the call to love. 
Love helps us to take the knowledge of the Holy Spirit and the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit into practical application in the body. Now, we need to start out by defining what is biblical Christian love to begin with. 1 John chapter number 3, verse number 18 says this, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You'll see that Christian love is always about taking action both in deed and in truth. It's not just words that we say. It's not just talk. It's about deed and in truth. I'm going to quote Dr. Sam Storms a lot in this message, but he had a great definition on love. He said this, love is a deep affection for, a delight in, and a commitment to the act for the welfare of another without regard for their loveliness that often comes at a great sacrifice to oneself. Or again, said another way, love is the overflow of our delight in God that joyfully cherishes and seeks the best interest of another regardless of the cost to oneself. And that's exactly what biblical love is. Biblical love is looking out for the welfare of someone else, even when it costs you something. And this is exactly how God loved us. He took deep delight in us and at great cost to himself, rescued us at a sacrifice of himself. John 3.16, of course, we've all heard this. For God so loved the world that he gave I want you to think of that. God delighted in you to the point that he gave so that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So why is love important when it comes to spiritual gifts? What's the connection here? The answer is shocking. Love is the most important thing because the reality is spiritual gifts can be faked. Spiritual gifts can be faked. We know from Scripture that it warns us that even the devil can fake miracles. There's a time that you see in the tribulation that demonic activity will lead a lot of people into deception. People can be deceived by thus saith the Lord, but you cannot fake a real lifestyle of love for very long. Sooner or later, our real nature comes to the surface. Signs and wonders do not confirm that we're Christians are love for one another confirms that we are Christians. And Jesus himself tells us this in John 13, 35. He says, by this, he's speaking of love, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's our love that confirms and upholds who Jesus is to us more than anything else. So Paul is pushing pause talking about spiritual gifts, trying to make sure that we understand the hinge in which these spiritual gifts are to work on. And there are three things out of this chapter that I want you to see in regards to love in the context of spiritual gifts. And the first is this, that love is the motivator for our spiritual gifts. Verses one through three says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I have gained nothing. Paul doesn't hold back. He gets right to the point. Love is the motivator of spiritual gifts, and the gifts that Christians are supposed to be displaying in our life are supposed to be undergirded and motivated by our love for one another and for other people. 
He starts out a list of spiritual gifts, and he's referencing in these three passages. Uh, There's no particular reason why he picked these gifts other than perhaps they're the ones that can create some pride. And he's saying, yes, you may be able to operate in those gifts, but if your motivation is anything other than the love for your neighbor or the love of God, it is worthless in its operation of that gift. Dr. Sam Storm said it like this. He said, quote, Paul makes it clear that love is not simply one more among the many spiritual gifts that are to be distributed throughout the body of Christ. Rather, love is a way of life, a virtue that is to be characterized, the desire for and the exercise of all spiritual gifts. This love transcends every spiritual gift individually and all of them taken together. It is more important and more valuable and more beneficial to the body of Christ than the collective power of tongues and prophecy and healing and miracle. But do not draw the wrong conclusion from this. In saying that love is better than spiritual gifts, he does not mean that spiritual gifts are bad. His purpose in this chapter is not to devalue spiritual gifts. He simply means that in the scramble for gifts and the tendencies that some of them have to produce pride and arrogance, love must be seen as paramount. So spiritual gifts are good and important and, in my opinion, indispensable to the church, but only if exercised in love and in the absence of love, they are utterly worthless. Wow. Dr. Sam Storms is echoing the very same thing that the Apostle Paul is trying to get across to the people. You cannot judge your walk with God by how you're being used by God. You must judge your walk with God by what's going on internally inside of your heart. We need to notice the nuances of what Paul is writing in this passage. Paul is not saying that the gifts are the problem. We are the problem. I want you to notice very carefully how Paul speaks in verse 1. He says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Notice that the tongue is not the clanging cymbal. He is the clanging cymbal. When we operate in spiritual gifts with the wrong motive, it's actually a detriment to our own spiritual condition. I said in the beginning that we as humans have a tendency to weaponize any sort of power that we have and use it against someone else. The problem is, is not the inanimate object. The problem is we are the problem. We are broken. We are, we are messed up, if you will, and we need correction in our own life. We are the ones that need to come into alignment. And so when we operate in the gift with the wrong motive, the spirit is tarnished, not because the gift is bad, but because we're bad. Oh, I thought maybe I'd get an amen on that one. I know this is a heavy one. I want you to think about it. Every single one of us know people, or we've seen people, doing things in the name of the Lord, but you know their character, and it makes your skin crawl. We have to be careful. Let's acknowledge the reality. There's one thing that we need to do, I believe, as Christians. This is my personal soapbox, if you will. We need to make sure that we're policing our own internal man. We need to make sure that our own internal man is in the right alignment with the Holy Spirit. We need to make sure that our own internal man is correct before God because a lot of us are trying to do things in the name of God, but we're doing it at the wrong motive or we're doing it at the wrong heart. And what we're doing is we're becoming clangy and we're becoming noisy. And what this world needs is they don't need noisy, clangy people. What this world needs is spirit-empowered Christians. And there is a huge difference. There's a huge difference. 
And we see that play out in Scripture. Paul's using very strong language, obviously, and we need to heed this language. He said, even martyrdom is of no value without love. Wow. So what is the principle of all this? God is ultimately more worried about your sanctification than your empowerment. Sanctification comes before empowerment every single time, and here's why. Because before we work in the gift of the Spirit, we need to make sure that our hearts are 100% surrendered in purity to the Lord. Now, does that mean that we need to be perfect before we can operate in a gift? Of course not. None of us are ever going to reach perfection. But what it does mean is that I need to allow the Holy Spirit to work on my sanctification to the same degree that I want the Holy Spirit to empower me. A lot of us are saying, God, I want to do something for you, but we're not welcoming God to do something in us. And we need to make sure that we're in right correction before God. I need to welcome the pruning of the Holy Spirit in my heart as much as I'm welcoming him to empower me with the gift. Why? Because if I raise somebody from the dead, but I fall in immorality, my witness to Christ is tarnished. Unfortunately, we have seen throughout history men and women who have done great things for God, but their character didn't back it up, and no one remembers what they did for God. They just remember their fall. And let's be honest, if you're a non-believer, can you blame them? We have to watch our heart. We have to get our motivation right. The motivation has to be Jesus first in my life. So love is the motivator. The second thing we see out of this section of Scripture, though, is love is the qualifier. Love is the qualifier. Verses 4 through 7 says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now that Paul has talked about the motivation, now he's talking about the qualifier of the gifts. Or said another way, he said this is how we should filter the gifts of the Spirit and inside of our life, and love is how we filter the gifts. Spiritual gifts need to be filtered and through love if they're going to have any power in the equation. Love for others, love for the outsiders, and love for God. And I think it's important to see that the fruit of the Spirit must be just as present as the gifts of the Spirit. If we're going to operate in the fruit and the gifts of the Spirit, but there's no fruit, what does that say about the gift? The fruit of the Spirit has to be the foundation of our life. And when you read Scripture, you see this playing in harmony. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to one another to keep you from doing what you want to do. How many of you have ever been there, right? Where the flesh starts to well up inside of you, and your frustration, your, your emotions sometimes take the best of you in a tense situation, and you want to say things that are not good. How many of you have ever been there, right? How many of you had that problem this morning on the way to church with your spouse, right? It happens, right? The flesh wells up and he's saying the flesh and the spirit are at contradiction to one another. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. We need to pause again. When we're claiming to be using the gifts of the spirit, we're claiming to be led by the spirit. So now the Bible's about to give us a litmus test for living a spirit-empowered life. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. 
He just lists off a bunch of things. And he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what he's saying is if we live by the flesh, this is going to be some fruit of that. And if that's the fruit of your life, he said, you need to check yourself because you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You're not going to make it to heaven. But the fruit of the Spirit, meaning if I'm a Christian, the Holy Spirit is working in my life, these are things that are going to be evident, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another to envy. Excuse me, provoking one another, envying one another. Notice in 1 Corinthians 13 and Galatians 5 go hand in hand. If we're operating in the gifts of the Spirit, we need to keep in step with the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit should not be looked at as nine different gifts coming into a person's life, but rather a culmination, a totality of a Christian's life. You cannot divorce yourself from the idea of walking in the fruit of the Spirit. Notice that it starts in love and it ends in self-control. Love is the goal. Self-control is the means by which it happens. So we cannot come and say to ourselves and say, hey, I'm going to walk in the gifts of the Spirit, but I struggle producing fruit. Self-control is the means, and the Holy Spirit doesn't force us, but he empowers us to do it. So if I say I'm empowered to prophesy, but I'm not empowered to produce fruit, whoops, moving on. Okay. Paul then gives us two lists. He lives the negative responses, and he lives the ideal. And he starts with this, this negative connotation first. Love is patient and kind, right? Like, he's obviously insinuating that we're not patient and kind sometimes. You ever been there? Yes. Love is patient. Love is kind. This is not the type of patience where you're waiting in a long line. Rather, it's a, pa- it's a patience that's enduring in the face of suffering without retaliation. The reality is that Christians in our nation need to understand that the nation itself is changing and we're going to face more retaliation for our faith and we better be ready to walk in patience in order to advance the cause of Christ. Now, having said that, just because you're patient with someone does not mean that you're kind. You can endure with someone and still hate them in your heart. So this type of patience in your life has to be also rooted in kindness in your heart. There has to be concern and thought for how you speak and perceive and think about other people. Love does not envy. It does not boast. Envy is where I see what else someone has, and I long for that and desire it in an unhealthy manner. In the context of spiritual gifts, we're to desire spiritual gifts, but we're not to be envious of how God uses other people to the point that we can't celebrate God using them inside the body. Paul talked about that in the previous chapter. He says, you can't look at somebody and say, if you're an ear, I'm not an eye. He says, every person is planted where they are for a reason. On the other hand, we can't, we can't go on boasting, right? It's just the opposite. It's just as dangerous. We can't look at someone else and say, because they've never been used the same way that God has used me, that they're not important or valuable. If I stand up here and say, somebody else isn't important to me because they don't preach every week, my heart is wrong and I better check myself. How many of you got saved because of a sermon or how many of you are like me, you're in church because somebody brought you and was a witness to you? I promise you, my Royal Ranger commander probably had more influence in my life than any pastor I had until I got a lot older. 
So dare we ever say, "Mm, I'm better than somebody else. Love is not arrogant. Whereas boasting is external quality, speaking with my mouth, arrogance is a matter of the heart. Arrogance in the context of, of this study says where you look and you say, you know what? I got it all together. Love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. Jesus is the example for how we're to live this out. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort and love, any participation in the spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, uh, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each one of you not only look at his own interests, but also the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you go on reading that, it, see, it tells how Jesus considered others more important than himself and laid down his life on the cross. We have to consider others' interests above our own. Love is not irritable, it is not resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. A person that's led by the Spirit is not easily angered. We're not easily irritable. We're not explosive in personality. We don't hold judges or ju- uh, we don't hold grudges towards other people. We allow, we don't allow ourselves to be overtly hurt. We don't ar- harbor bitterness or resentment towards other people. Why? Because our love drives those things out of our life. So Paul gives us the negative list first, and if any of those elements are manifesting in our life, then we need to go to the Lord, we need to push pause, and we say, God, bring my spiritual condition into alignment with your word. Now Paul goes from addressing the negative to the ideal. These are the elements that should be in the life of a spirit-filled believer. Love rejoices in truth, a person who's motivated by love, rejoices in the truth of the gospel and looks for opportunities to go to others and say, good job, you did well. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is the attitude of one who loves and, tr- and trusts in the Lord, who allows the Lord's love to manifest in their life. They look for the best in other people. They assume the best about other people, and that helps them overcome, and they look for the type of people that they can encourage all of the time. People who love are not gullible by any means, but their love motivates them in order to help others rise above and they don't push people down. They look for opportunities to pick people up instead of attacking them. And here's the big concept of this point. We have to care about the spiritual condition of our own lives. If we're seeking spiritual gifts, but the gift and the quality of the fruit of love is not manifesting itself, then we're out of sync with what God wants to do in our life. Fruit of the Spirit, sanctification, love is the only solid ground in which we can build upon for spiritual gifts. I am not a car guy by any means, but if money was not an option, I could have any car in the world. I think a 1970 Mustang Boss 429 looks awesome, right? You know, maybe someday Buddy can fix one up for me. I don't know, right? Let's imagine that, like, this thing, I mean, it is nice, right? I think I'd probably go with, with red, with, you know, white racing stripes. I think that looks really cool. Maybe solid black. Either way, I don't know. I mean, you, like, lift up the hood, everything's spotless. It looks really cool. Like, this car's fast. Sounds good. But then I put bald tires on it. What's going to happen? No matter how much power I have underneath the hood, I'm still going to end up in the ditch, And it doesn't matter how much power we have in the gifts. If we have bald tires, we don't have the fruit of the Spirit in our life. We will end up in the ditch. Love is the motivator. Love is the qualifier. And the last is this. Love is higher because it's eternal. 
Starting in verse number eight, it says, love never ends. Okay, that's the point. That's the context so we can understand the rest of this. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be fully known, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now this passage of scripture, in my opinion, has been historically misinterpreted. This passage is cited by a lot of cessationists. We talked about them in the first week, people who believe that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer for today. They try to use this as evidence to say that God does not work in the gifts of the Spirit. However, obviously, when you read through the context of that, I would disagree with that strongly. Paul is not downplaying spiritual gifts, and he's not even really talking about spiritual gifts ending. Rather, what he's trying to do is he's trying to lift up love. And so the point of this passage is not the ceasing aspect of spiritual gifts, but that love never ceases. It is eternal. All of the gifts someday will pass away when the Lord comes and establishes his kingdom. There's not going to be a need for prophecy in heaven when we're with Jesus 24-7. There's not going to be a need for healing when we're with Jesus 24-7. Why? Because he's already wiped away the tears from our eyes and the former things of life have passed away. So we understand in heaven and God's eternal kingdom, yes, someday these things are going to cease. But the thing that will never cease is love. Why? Because God is love and his love never ends. It is eternal there's times that heaven and earth are going to pass away, but his love never ends. It is always going to be here. It will never cease. So love has more value than anything else in life because when we live in love, we're holding on to the eternal quality of the Christian lifestyle that will never go away. When you have love in your life today, it's the very same thing that you're going to have in 100 million years from today when you're in heaven with Jesus. Why? Because it will never end. Verse 11 is the key to understanding this section of Scripture. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And here's what he's saying. When I was a young man in the faith, I might have missed this, but now that I'm mature in the faith, I understand that love comes first because love is eternal. So if we're going to be a church of the Spirit, then we must acknowledge what Paul's saying. We must be a church of love above all else. I want to close with this if the worship team wants to come back. Love for God, love for others must be the driver of our church. It must be our motivator, it must be our qualifier, it must be our why. We must hold on to it because it's eternal. Love has to be the driver for our sanctification. When we love God, we want to be more like Jesus. And I ask a simple question, when was the last time that you came before Jesus and you said, God, rip open my heart and realign my life so that I'm in alignment with you? Love has to be the driver for our witness. When we realize that there are lost people in our community, and our families, and our circle of friends who need Jesus. Our love for them has to be our motivator, has to be our qualifier in order to present the gospel to them and reach them for the kingdom. Simple question for you. When was the last time 
that you shared your faith with somebody that you're in contact with. Love has to be the driver and the motivator in our families. Our families need to be marked by love. We might be accomplishing a lot in the church building, but we need to be accomplishing something with our kids. We need to be accomplishing something with our spouses, with our extended family. We must be living a way of love that is a testament to them. And yes, we need to be a people of love inside of this room. Love has to be the motivator, the qualifier of all spiritual gifts because it's eternal. When I come to the end of a message, I always think of what the response should be. The response needs to be dictated based upon the message. If the Holy Spirit took time to make sure that Paul put 1 Corinthians chapter number 13 in the book, what should be our response to that? How should we walk this out? How can we push pause online and say, God, rip open my heart and show me the spiritual condition of love inside of me? I don't think there's a better way to do that than to take communion together. Here in just a moment, we're going to be taking communion. And communion is an act of proclaiming and participating in the Lord's death. Participating in communion is pushing pause in life and it's remembering the greatest act of love in history. We've just read a whole chapter on love and we've diagnosed and dissected this whole chapter in love and we've talked about how it should be applied to our life. But if you really want to understand love, all you have to do is look at the cross. Because when you look at the cross, then you understand what love is. When you look at the cross, you understand how your response to your neighbor should be. When you look at the cross, you understand your response to God. When you look at the cross, you understand this eternal love that Paul just talked about. In the context of spiritual gifts, Jesus is God. And it wasn't the gifts that he used that ultimately proved who he was. It was the fact that he laid down his life and took it up again. It was the act of love that he displayed. Sure, of course, the signs were confirming his word. But when Jesus walked out of that empty tomb, we knew he was God. And what caused him to go through all that? His love for you and me. And so today we need to push pause and we need to remember the words of our Savior. It's by our love for one another that the whole world will know that we are His.